This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-host Jen Wilkin and JT English. And on today's episode, you see what I did there? I just Kyle, cut you guys you completely. Even... I just ah. I cut you out completely. I I'm so exuberant... excited to see you, Kyle. Yeah, it's so good to see you today. Oh, don't tell me that the one time yeah. in 150 or some yeah. odd episodes. That Your hair I looks great. Oh, oh what a wait a minute. Slam. What a slam. <laughs> Golly. <laughs> Oh, wait, that stings. Um, it's, it does sting. I, I, I think you're a beautiful person, Kyle. Wow. Thank I you, do, too. I appreciate that. Yeah, well, you know, it sounds beautiful a Beautiful ball, more... Baptist baby. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> we are moving on now to Romans chapter two. God help me, please, with my I have friend. to say, we've talked about this before. Like, it's terribly unfair of me because there's no way Kyle can strike back, right? You know, like he can't criticize my physical appearance. It's horrible. And I it's totally true. played the card anyway. And I have found, I have found, and I think JT has found out too, that no, uh, nobody is a fan of us seriously disagreeing or coming at Jen. It, just it does not, not help. It does not help us. <laughs> At all. It so never, it doesn't work. We're not witty enough. And yeah. she has an army of people yeah. behind her. Yeah. There's the, the, the comment threads are squarely in the Jen Wilkin universe. So, <laughs> yeah. It's, it is what it's, it is. It is what it is. You live and you learn. But today we're talking about Romans chapter two because the Gentiles and Jews, they, they weren't living and learning. <laughs> Hey, just just as a Kyle. side note, just, I know I know we're getting we're getting into Romans. We need to do that. Kyle, do you remember the first time where we physically felt what you were just talking about? Oh, oh it's recorded. Truth. Yeah, it was at, it was at a conference that we were recording a Knowing Faith podcast, and I remember thinking to myself, Ah, yeah, I disagree with Jen. I'm gonna say that, and it just like the room shriveled around me. It it felt like you were disagreeing with you. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I was mean, like, you, I felt like a you Pharisee were wrong too. But well, I mean, I other than that, I was, yeah, <laughs> I was absolutely not wrong. A thousand percent not wrong. Which goes to show, truth does yeah, not was, have friends uh, in our world today. <laughs> Yeah, it, was, it was definitely it was one of those. Right? Like I thought to myself, I need to. Oh yeah. I was thinking, I need to leave this conference without speaking to a person. Like I need to find a back door, <laughs> get to my car, and simply go home. <laughs> yeah, pretty hostile. Pretty it hostile. Was pretty great. I was but... thinking of all the times I've sat in meetings and heard like my idea said by someone else, and I just sat there and I'm like, nope, today's my day to shine. Yeah, that you, happens sometimes. It, Speaking it of was... sin, let's get to Romans two. Yes. Romans 2. So good. <laughs> Romans 2. We are, uh, if you missed the last couple episodes, we've been in the book of Romans. Would encourage you to go back and listen to a few of those episodes. But if not, let me give you a quick recap. Paul's writing to a church in Rome. He's writing a letter. He's never been there. The church is comprised of Gentile and Jewish Christians. It's very likely it was founded by Jewish Christians. But after a time of Jewish exile from Rome, Gentile Christians kind of took over the leadership of the church. Jewish Christians came back into the life of that and are now trying to kind of sort out what does it mean to be a church of Gentile and Jewish Christians here in Rome. And Paul is writing to this church. He's giving them the good news of the righteousness of God, the good news for which he's not ashamed, the good news that is the power of God for salvation. It's the good news of the gospel. And last episode, we talked really about what we might call the anti-gospel, the anti-good news, which is the story and impact of the brokenness of humanity. That theme continues into chapter two and chapter three pretty resoundingly. And so today we're going to be looking at Romans chapter two. We're not going to read the entire chapter because we're covering the whole chapter today. There are some episodes where we just have to cover a lot of ground, and this is one of them. So instead, we're going to read Romans 2, just verses 1 through 11. And I'm going to put them on the hot seat. I'm going to ask JT, 
to read Romans 2, 1 through 11. Uh, don't mess up, JT, or the internet will <laughs> never let you live it down. <laughs> All right, we ready? Romans chapter yeah. 2, beginning of verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and the forbearance and his patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impotent hearts, you are storing up for yourselves wrath on the day that the wrath of God, when the righteousness judgment will be revealed. This is verse six. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Oh, it's going to be a good conversation. This one's going to be a good one. Let's go. All right, let's start with a good Bible reading tip, Jen. Uh, mm. When we see therefore, is there any sort of, isn't there like a cute way of saying it's this? It's an adorable way, yes. We ask, okay. what's the therefore? Therefore. And if you listened to our last episode, you know that we talked about the personal pronouns that were being used. It was they, 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 they. It was third person. And now he moves to you. He says, therefore, you have no excuse. And it would be a jarring shift. And not only that, but we've talked a lot about how most or many of the yous that you see in the New Testament are all y'alls, where he's talking to everybody. And this is actually a singular you. And he's saying, you, oh man. So he's pointing to, he's, he's basically pressing the individual to take responsibility for how he or she, Jew or Gentile, is complicit in what he has just described as our state of rebellion against God. So that's what the therefore is there for. That's, that's really good. And I think it's really interesting because that's not the only clue here in verse one that we should look at what came before. You have the therefore, which is certainly like the clue of, hey, in reference to what I've said, I'm about to make some comments. But you have the repetition of you have no excuse. So if you mm-hmm. go back to Romans 1, which we looked at last week, we see Romans 1.20, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so they are without excuse. So you're not just getting the therefore in reference. You're saying they had no excuse. And you you have have no excuse. excuse. Uh, Every one of you who judges. So it is very personal. It's very direct. The tone has shifted. Paul's kind of been looking back at what we called the story of sin and brokenness in Romans 1, 18 through 32. His angle starts to change a little bit here in Romans two, where he's addressing his immediate audience. So, mm-hmm. and what's he what's he call, what's he calling them to task for, JT? What's the real issue he's taking with them in these first few verses here? Hypocrisy ultimately is is mm-hmm. going to be one of the main points of this passage. And I'd be interested to hear your guys' thoughts on. And I'm I'm going to keep answering your question, but as I've been preparing for this, it seems like Romans chapter one, though directed at all humanity and Romans chapter two, also directed at all humanity. He has two distinct audiences in mind and that came to bear there in verse nine, 10, 11. He's talking to Jews and Gentiles. And mm-hmm. so primarily the Romans chapter one is again, intended for all humanity. He's talking about the mm-hmm. Gentile way of living here in Romans mm-hmm. chapter two. 
he's beginning to speak about his Jewish and to his Jewish audience. Again, also the Gentiles are listening in because Mm -hmm. you get through Romans chapter one and you're thinking to yourself, well, that's not us. We have God's law. We are, we are the ones who are the recipients of God's covenantal blessings and promises. God's wrath has not been revealed against us because look, we have the Torah. We've got these Jewish sign barriers and markers that distinguish us from those Gentile sinners. But here he's taking aim specifically at what would have been understood as God's covenantal people and says, hey, listen, guys, you don't have any excuse also. He's going to continue this theme in Romans chapter three, where he's saying God's kindness and patience to you should have led you to repentance. But you guys, you're just as as sinful as the Gentiles that I was just speaking about. Yeah, Mm -hmm. absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yes, So it's not just that he's moving from the common to the individual. I think he's moving from the Gentile to the Jewish. Yeah, I think you're right. Because he's basically, he's going to talk about the Gentiles as being those who are without the law as he moves further on into the letter. And and what he's establishing here is you have the law, but what you've used it for is to judge your brother instead of using it as a window into your own heart. Which is what makes you the hypocrites. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You you have the law. So we didn't read this, but verse 13, it says, for it is not the hearers of the law. And they thought we have some advantage because we've heard the law. We're the recipients of it. Mm -hmm. We're we're the ones who hear God's law. Therefore, God has been merciful to us. Mm -hmm. But he's saying it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law. So whether you're Jewish or Gentile, it is the doers of God's law that God is looking for. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. And yet, and yet that is not what's happening. There's a judgment problem in the church in Rome, because it turns out it's a lot easier to condemn somebody else for not doing the law and subsequently to try to appear more righteous than you are than to actually follow God's ways. And what's happening here in the church in Rome is it appears that there is a culture of judgment where there are some who are sitting in judgment on the others. And Paul is taking the Jewish Christians to task for doing this, for Mm -hmm. minimizing or trying to minimize their disobedience and impenitence and unrighteousness by maximizing the sins and the lawlessness of Gentile Christians. I mean, look at verse four. I mean, I think that verse four is one of those that's just kind of heartbreaking, both for the Jewish Christians when you think about their story, but also for us as Christians when we think about our own life of repentance and faith, when it says, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Mm-hmm. If you're a Jewish Christian, when you hear that, what do you hear other than the numerous times where God freed you from exile, freed you from judgment, released and redeemed you only to have you presume on his kindness and step right back into the wickedness or the unrighteousness. And that's just true for Jewish Christians, but how many times have we as followers of Jesus been released, forgiven, redeemed, rescued, only then to look back and say, Okay, I want to I want to go back to that sin. I want to go back mm-hmm. to that unrighteousness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you guys think would be a contemporary like mirror of this today? Well, I was actually thinking of an RC Sproul illustration, and Jen, you'll appreciate. Jen this, just but, smiled ear to ear. I don't think I'd seen yeah, Jen like, smile as that we bit. so often are. <laughs> yes, uh-huh. as we so often are. I mean, so. Sproul has an illustration where he talks about this presumption. It's not like a modern day example, like culturally, but it's a great story. He talks about these two students and they're in, they were in his class. And he's telling the story about how at the end of the semester and a research paper is due and a student comes up to him after class and says, Dr. Sproul, I'm so sorry. I, uh, I don't have my research paper. It's, I, I don't have it ready yet. It's not due uh, or it's due and I, I don't have it ready. It's not complete. 
And uh, he could tell that the young man is like truly like sorrowful. He missed the boat. He feels like he really didn't deliver. And Dr. Sproul says, well, you know what? It's forgiven. I'm going to give you an A for the paper. Basically like just covers it. And the guy just melts in front of him and is like, I can't Mm -hmm. believe this. Like, that's an incredible thing. Why would you do that? And he was like, you know, God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. God is gracious with us. And so the student runs off and he starts, he tells his classmates, this is what Dr. Sproul, Dr. Sproul did. The next semester, Dr. Sproul has a class and a student comes up to him and says, you know, Dr. Sproul, I, uh, I didn't do my research paper. It's not complete. I'm sorry. Uh, and Dr. Sproul says, well, that's really unfortunate. I'm going to have to fail you. And the, and the young man goes, but that's not fair. You gave, mm-hmm. you gave that other student an A. And Dr. Sproul says, I, he's like, I knew it. <laughs> you, were presu- <laughs> you were presuming on the riches of my kindness. You, you, mm-hmm. you wouldn't heard this. And instead of hearing it as a motivator for, wow, like, that what a what a what a great foundation to have as I move mm-hmm. forward and let it instead of it motivating you towards obedience, it motivated you towards wickedness. And I've always mm-hmm. remembered that story when I hear this passage because God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance, not to merely just say, "Oh, it doesn't really matter what you do." Yeah, you know, His graciousness is there, not just so we can live however we want. This is exactly the objection Paul is going to deal with in Romans six one, coming out of the great freedom of justification by faith, you know, what shall we continue to say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. No. Grace and kindness of God is meant to lead us to walk in holiness and repentance, not to just presume on the riches of his kindness. Well, and it, I think it also, another way that we presume on the riches of his kindness is, and that the Jews would have, is that they assume that his kindness in the law is meant to set them apart by pushing others down. But his kindness to them in the law is meant to set them apart by turning them inward for self-examination that they might repent, right? And and this is this is what the legalist does. The legalist appropriates the law for self-elevation, mm-hmm. yeah. not for repentance. And so the law, it's, you know, we're going to get into a lot of is the law good or is the law bad? The law is in, in a very real sense, God's kindness to those who want to be conformed to the image of Christ, but it can be used in ways that are not good. And I, I'm pretty sure this is from R.C. Sproul too, because if I say things that make sense, I probably stole them from him. Um, it was him or someone else teaching on this who, who made the point that when, with regard to the law, it's a good rule of thumb to be gracious to others and a legalist with yourself. And so obviously he doesn't mean that we should practice legalism, but that if you're going to hold someone's feet to the fire with regard to what the law requires of them, let it be yourself before you're going to turn and hold someone else's feet to the fire. And uh, I've always thought that was a, it's a good watchword for checking your motive anytime you are reading the commands of the Lord and thinking, yeah, um, so-and-so doesn't do that, you know, to look first to your own heart. That's good. That's good. And what is the what is one of our great motivations for avoiding sinful judgment in this passage? There's a big one, which is wrath. Wrath. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Like, you know, you're because of what you're doing, mm-hmm. your hard impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when mm-hmm. God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. Right. So basically it's like, hey, if you judge, you're go you know this, you are going to be judged. And the one who's going to be judging you is going to be perfect, and he's the standard bearer. Like, if you want to walk in this double wickedness of hypocrisy and judgment on another, just know a day of wrath is coming, and it will be measured to you as you have measured it. You might say there's an already and not yet to the wrath of God. 
because we yeah. talked about how the wrath of God is being revealed and now he's saying it will be revealed uh, even yeah. even further. And that idea of storing up wrath, like he's telling, you know, it makes me think of storing up treasure in heaven, right? That when we talk about that faith is the substance of things not seen, part of an unseen God, the reality of an unseen God is that not only are there good things that are being stored up, but that there are negative things that are being stored up as well. And we don't always look at the double-edged sword of that teaching. You know, we want to think about the positive aspects of it, but it is instructive to both the Jew and the Gentile to think about uh, the way that God will weigh. And it's fascinating to me too here that the, that the focus on what God will weigh is our works because so yeah. often you hear James, the message of James, you know, don't be merely hearers of the word, but be doers. I mean, that's exactly what Paul is saying here in, in verse 13. Yep. So we have to reconcile why are both James and Paul talking about works uh, in this way? Because we've been told that works are, uh, that our, our, all of our righteousness is filthiness and rags. So fix it, fix it, JT and Kyle. <laughs> well, even in the, in the academy, there's so many people who want to separate. And we've done, we've yeah. heard this before, separate the message of Jesus from the message of Paul or the message from Paul and the mm-hmm. message from James. And here you see them saying literally the, the same. Mm-hmm. same thing, yeah. which is the apostolic deposit that was given to them. And the reality is all of these compl- are complex. Anytime you want to walk into biblical heresy, you stop holding these things in tension. That's good. But we need to say unequivocally what Paul says here in verse six, he will render to each one according to his work. That is yeah. gospel centrality. Yeah, I don't like that. Tell me what that means. <laughs> Kyle? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think that, I mean, now, I don't know where we'll all land on this, but I believe that there that the day of judgment is a day of judgment for, like the creed says, God will come to judge the living and the dead. Now, the difference between those two will not merely be their righteous or unrighteous standing. And I think that a lot of times when we think about the judgment of God, we think. Are you going to go into like a Bemis seat presentation right now, making me? (laughs) No, no, no. I'm just saying. I think that a lot of times when we think about God's eschatological judgment or or standing before God, we think about it exclusively as you will either stand before God righteous in Christ or Mm -hmm. unrighteous outside of Christ. Mm -hmm. Now that's fundamental. Those will be your two paths, but. For neither person will it be the only thing that is weighed and judged. But the okay, different- I, I'm not I'm not opposed to you. I, I think you've actually talked about this before on the podcast. But let's just I have because I because I, I got to tell you I'm I'm upset. Tell me, <laughs> tell I'm, me why. I'm upset because and listen, I I don't I'm not I don't want to I'm not going to name any names. I'm not trying to put anybody on blast. I love the gospel centrality ethic. I love it theologically. I believe it. The problem is is we're, we're, everybody's sitting around in the last couple of years wondering, huh, why does it seem like our people haven't been formed as disciples? Uh-huh. Well, maybe it's because we, did, we told them there was no virtue or works required for discipleship. Hmm. That's oh. bad. That's bad. And I, I just feel like a lot of the same pastors who are on Twitter scratching their heads about, I wonder why so many people don't seem to understand that there's a cost of following Jesus. Well, it's maybe for 10 years you told them that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. I'm oh. sorry. Oh, my gosh. God. Oh, my goodness. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just saying. No, Hang like, on. This yeah. is coming from the Union in Christ guy, Roman yeah. 6. You've been seated yeah. in the heavenlies. But he's, I yeah, like I mean. Jekyll and Hyde right now, Kyle. 
Oh, no, I'm saying once I'm, you I'm have kidding. Jesus. I know you're not. Yeah. I know you're not. I'm actually just asking you to tease it. Uh, and, and honestly, to our listeners, we are laughing at Kyle's expression of this idea, not at this idea. We are all yes. on the same page with this. Yes. Um, because, you know, I just wrote a book on the Ten Commandments because yeah. people would say, well, I'm not under the law anymore. And I'm like, well, are you a murderer now then? Like, right. no one believes that. Right. No one thinks that they're not beholden to the law of God because they're not in practice. People aren't going out and sinning. That's right. You know, because they're no longer bound by the law. We're bound by the law joyfully now exactly. instead of guiltily. And and so the, the but, Christian but looks Kyle, at the law of go ahead. I was gonna say my question for you is it sounds like you're talking about God is going to grant merit or rewards to those who are practicing virtuousness. Oh, yeah, yeah. As Talk if about that. As if that's unrelated to or or somehow related to eternal life and eternal death. But it seems like what he's saying here, I'm just trying to let the text give us the weight of what it's talking about. It says, verse 6, he's going to render to each one according to his works, to those who by, so now virtue, patience and well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life, not rewards. Yeah, this is not a passage that focuses on that. There are other passages that I think you could read to suggest that there might be a connection there. But here's how I think about spiritual rewards and how I think about the promise. I want to be clear. I don't think about spiritual rewards as like somebody's going to get more of X than the other righteous person standing next to them. I think about mansions. No, I think about spiritual benefit as, listen, our obedience in this side of heaven in Christ, it limbers us up to enjoy all that will be available for us in heaven forever for everyone. Meaning, Mm. I think there are people who enter into heavenly splendor having been limbered up by obedience, having been stretched by obedience in a way that makes them ready or maybe even more ready or more prepared to enjoy what God has for every believer in Christ forever in heaven. Not that they're going to have some sort of exclusive access or a bigger something or more jewels in their crown or whatever, but basically like this, believing sanctification is not just something we render unto God now because we should, but because it readies us to enjoy more of God now and more of God in the life to come. I mean, if the reward of enjoyment and contentment in God's presence isn't the benefit of sanctification, then is sanctification mere theological altruism? That's not how it's painted so, but at let's all. Just say, let's just, so granted, put a pin in it. We can come back to it. I don't think that's what he's saying here to you. No, I'm not, I, again, I was saying, I think there are You're other passages that we'll talk thing. about. That's a separate thing. What I'm saying is I feel like this is weightier than we allow it to be. Like there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil to the Jew first and to the Greek and then glory and honor. Or if you go back to verse eight, he's saying there's going to be, so he's basically saying there's eternal life for those who practice virtue. And then there is wrath and fury for those who don't. Yes. But virtue, you have to define Virtue, right? Is that what you're trying well, to does, go to sense doing here, JT? Well, I'm not goading anything. I'm saying he tells us what it is. Well-doing, seek for glory, honor, and immortality. He will give eternal life. Yeah, but of course, well-doing, seek for honor, and immortality are things that the pagans chase after too. So uh, what do you think Paul's talking about? Motive. Mm. Yeah. yeah. You have to have, yeah. because because virtue is not just right actions. It's right motives attached to right actions, right? And yeah. I would even and- take it further to say that, you know, Kyle's talking about sanctification being its own form of reward. And I think he's right. That's, you know, going back to the idea of storing up treasures in heaven, which yes, it's in Matthew, it's not here, but bear with me. Sanctification doesn't just bring treasure to the one who practices it. It draws others to 
the truth of the gospel. And so mm-hmm. part of the treasure that we store up in heaven is human treasure because we shine like lights in the darkness and others mm-hmm. are drawn into saving faith. And so I think there's a lot going on here. I think our obedience is the thing that sets us apart from everybody else because our obedience doesn't look like the obedience of the pagan. Absolutely. And, um, and so when we are disobedient recipients of grace— we should incur the wrath of God. Yeah. Is that bad to say? Now, whether we well, do or not is a big question. Would you say that yeah. we do? No, should that we should incur the wrath of God for disobedience is incontestable. We are assigned it by nature and we should receive it by merit. The difference is when we are given the righteousness of God as a new and proper standing, which Paul is going to get to very clearly in four, five, and six, that righteousness of God is used as a standing to do something, yeah, <laughs> to walk in virtue. It's not given as a standing to exempt oneself from mm-hmm. doing the thing that God wants. The Christian looks at the law of God and does not say, I must obey that. The Christian looks at the law of God and says, why would I not obey God's perfect law? It's a complete mm-hmm. reorientation of motivation. It, it's, a, it's an exchanging of the foolishness of the world for the wisdom of God. Absolutely. Pointing Absolutely. back to the earlier discussion. And the problem isn't Paul rebuking the Jews here for their admiration or delight in the law. Paul isn't browbeating the Jews for saying, you foolish Jews looking to the law. That's not what he's saying. He's saying to them, hey, Jewish Christians, you're standing on the law to discredit the righteousness of the Gentiles. And guess what? You're both condemned unrighteous by the law. Yeah. So, you, the ground you think is underneath your feet is going to open up underneath you if you mm-hmm. miss out on there is a righteousness you need that cannot come from your judgment of the Gentiles or your adherence to the law perfectly. Mm-hmm. Okay, you asked earlier, what's a practical way that we do this today? Yes, that's. I wanted to ask you again. Yep. Yeah, I think denominations do this to each other. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, well, at least I'm not a and then fill in the blank, um, rather than looking for the things that join us, the things that unite us, the ways that we can partner with one another. We look at ways to push each other away. And I think this is a particularly significant teaching as we head into post-Christian twilight. Absolutely. If the impulse is, how can I be separate from those who are also called versus how can I look for the bridges between those who are also called, then the wrath of God is being stored up Yep. Yep. Yeah, I think so. So what we're saying is, is that the Jews believed that possession of a spiritual heritage and specific sign markers is what set them apart as God's people. And Paul is saying, actually, it's not those things that set you apart as God's people. It's those very things that actually condemn you Mm. because the possession of these things is not salvific. It is not meant to be that the fact that you are circumcised or participate in food laws that sets you apart. It should be your obedience. Mm -hmm. Now, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't be teachers of the Torah. It's that you should be teachers of the Torah, but you should also be obedient to the very things that you're teaching and browbeating the Gentiles with. Mm -hmm. Kyle? The only thing that I would change about what you said there, and this is the influence of N.T. Wright, I think, on on this conversation is I don't, I, I think it would be fair to say that it is true that the boundary markers and the uh, first hearers of the law does set Israel apart in a unique way from the Gentile Christians, but not yes. in the eyes of God, in the eyes of the world. That, that's, well, uh, that's what I would actually say. Maybe, we're going to get to this in the next, in the next uh, episode. Chapter 3, verse 1. What advantage has the Jew? 
See, but I, but here's, here's my take on this and maybe we'll have more time there too. I actually don't think that this primacy or this advantage or this differentiation, I think the Jews are misunderstanding this as they're getting primacy with God as a result of it. I don't think that's what's happening. I think it's just merely that, hey, there's a distinctiveness between you and the peoples of the world. So yes, you are distinct among the peoples, but you're not distinctly favored by God. And I think that's part of the confusion. It's not Paul minimizing Jewish distinctiveness. I think Paul's fine with that. I think he's, I think he's okay. I actually think he endorses that. I think the problem is the Jews are using that distinctiveness, not as a blessing to the world, but as a cudgel. They're not, it's not a matter of, they're not taking what God has given them and saying, Hey, because of this, because we are distinct in the eyes of the world through our way of living, this is now a blessing to the nations. They're saying, no, it's a condemnation to the nations. Well, I think what you're saying is to whom much is given, much is required. And so the the Jews have been given much for many years uh, and have arguably sat on it. I mean, that's what, you know, that's basically the report in the New Testament. Um, right. And so he's, he's saying, you thought this was to call you to a higher status, but it's calling you to a higher accountability. Yeah. And so Paul, at least we could say in this passage, is trying to convince and convict the Jews that it's not just those dirty Gentile sinners that need the yes. law. It's yeah. that them themselves that need the law. Yes, and you, absolutely. You both, you both stand condemned, and it's not. It's you're not Jewish because of these outward signs, or or people of God or a person of God by keeping these outward signs. You're a person of God because you've been indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Not that you've been circumcised by the flesh, but circumcised mm-hmm. circumcised by the heart, which should lead you into not just being teachers of the law, mm-hmm. but also doers of the law. Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, it's good. I can't wait to get to chapter three. Do you ever get stuck wondering how to study a Bible passage? The Courage for Life Study Bibles for Women and the Courage for Life Study Bibles for Men have over 1,400 Bible studies. That's a Bible study on every page of Bible text. Access to the Filament Bible app lets you dive even deeper. If you download the app and you scan the page number, you can open up a world of resources, including over 25,000 additional study notes, hundreds of videos, and a full audio Bible. Start discovering at Courage for Life Bible That's courageforlifebible.com for incredible study notes and an incredible study Bible. Have you ever wondered what is God's heart towards you? In this noisy world, God's heart beats hard with love and mercy. But how can God share his heart with us when he doesn't have our attention? You're invited to spend 100 days discovering the beautiful, merciful heart of God with Overflowing Mercies, a new devotional by Craig Allen Cooper. The Lord is not ashamed of you or quick-tempered toward your faults. Each one of your weaknesses, faults, frailties, and failures does more to arouse God's love than to stir up His anger. If you could fathom in some small way how warmly God truly feels about you, the faintest grasp of His immeasurable affection would reduce you to tearful wonder and heartfelt gratitude. As God's mercies are new every single morning, overflowing mercies will continue to be a constant well of refreshing comfort, encouragement, and strength. It's perfect for personal quiet times, family and dinner table devotions, and small groups. Let this devotional help you get intentional, stay connected to God, and continue loving others. Order your copy of Overflowing Mercies, 100 Meditations on the Tender Heart of God today at moodypublishers.com or wherever great books are sold.
All right, so you've already kind of led us in that direction, JT, so let's keep going that way. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. This is Romans 2.12. Then verse 13, it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So we are getting this, um, this is the the great equalizer, right? Is that like, hey, you're all condemned by the law. Mm -hmm. Jew, Gentile, Everyone is condemned by the law, whether you got it or you don't. But you can be declared righteous. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it won't just be through hearing. It will be through doing. Is this interesting given the fact that we often think about justification? I mean, this phrasing of the doers of the law will be justified. It's yeah. going to sound very interesting when you read it next to Romans 5.1. You know, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to read verse 14. I want to keep going. It says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. Mm -hmm. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So I'm reading this and all I can think of is Rahab, who is... Mm -hmm. She's the Gentile prostitute woman. So those are her three strikes and you're out, right? She's the last and the least. And she is a an Old Testament figure for us of the gathering in of the Gentiles into the family of God. And what does she do? She stands up in the midst of, of the Canaanite nations and gives a faithful proclamation of who God is. But she doesn't just demonstrate that she knows who he is in whatever you know, form you can when you only, you know, at this point, she, we would assume she only has a limited amount of revelation, right? She, she has natural revelation. She has the report that God is who he says he is based on what happens with Sion and Og and with the Exodus. But she then acknowledges that he is who he says he is and she doesn't just do it with words. She does it with costly actions mm-hmm. and she's she's commended for it, right? And so I think that this is the pattern. I think he, I think, I think he means for us to think of Rahab and all of the other Gentile examples in the Old Testament of those who demonstrated an awareness of who God is, even though they had not uh, received the law in specific terms. But he's doing something bigger than that too. He's also showing that even if you don't acknowledge God's law as true and right, it's it's in you fighting to get to the surface. Yes. And that's, you know, you're either going to squash it or you're going to pay attention to it. Yeah, I think the way you just said that is a really good way of saying it, which is God's law has been written on our hearts. You know, um, Tom Schreiner, who we'll have on later in this season, he talks about how Gentiles are fairly judged for their sin because even without knowing the Mosaic law, they are conscious of moral norms and yet do not consistently keep them. That consciousness of moral norms is to say, listen, the Mosaic law is not introduced into God's world in a vacuum. It's introduced into God's world as kind of congruent it with these moral laws, these natural laws that exist that God is making explicit in the law. So whether the Gentiles have heard it or not, these moral natural laws exist. And sometimes the Gentiles step into obedience to them unknowingly. Mm -hmm. And when they're disobeying them, even if they are disobeying them as unknowns of the specifics of the Mosaic law, they are still disobeying God's law, whether they know it or not. Right. I think you might say subconsciously. Is that a good way yes. to say it? Like we, yes. we subconsciously gravitate toward 
moral norms that are reflected in God's moral law. Yes. But just because it's subconscious, our disobedience is still disobedience. Yes, because the law is still the law. The law is still the law. So maybe even to try to connect this to what we talked about in the last episode on the inversion that is a part of every human heart. If we were using systematic theology categories, we would have talked about total depravity and original sin. Mm -hmm. And total depravity does not mean that every Gentile is the most ugly, grotesque, worst sinner they can be. That does Mm -hmm. not, that's not what we're saying. Even here, because we're seeing sometimes Gentiles, whatever language we want to use subconsciously, knowingly or unknowingly, they can be obedient. But we even want to ascribe that obedience to God's common grace to all people through our consciousness. Like God has given us a conscious understanding of reality in Romans chapter one, verses 19 and 20, talking about we've clearly perceived. And so Mm -hmm. God has been gracious to allow Mm -hmm. even Gentiles who do not have the law to receive a spiritual law under their hearts to be obedient to his law from time to time. Yeah. Does that make sense? And that's, I think that's an important distinction because it's not just that humans have figured it out. It's that God has made himself known naturally and even through our consciences that we should be obedient to this natural ordering of the world. Mm -hmm. Yep. Absolutely. I want to extend further that idea of that story that uh, of Rahab, because when you get into um, verse 17 and Paul says, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth, You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? Then he goes on, you know, through these lists of the things that we're hypocrites about. Well, think back to that story of Rahab. You had the children of Israel who had witnessed firsthand their deliverance from Egypt who doubt God's provision in Canaan. That's why they find themselves at Rahab's door in the first place. And so um, that's a very redemptive picture of what happens because the Jewish spies, uh, the Hebrew spies who go in actually acknowledge that Rahab is a part of the family of God. And that's the appeal that Paul is making here. He's saying, can you acknowledge that you who have had this greater revelation have not done with it what you should? You are the mm-hmm. ones who live in doubt and in and in disobedience, even though you have this fuller revelation. So he's trying to open the door for the Jew to welcome the Gentile into the riches of God's grace. Yes, yep. And Paul continues here and he gives us a picture of just why judgment is so foolish because what we judge is we judge on the outside, but verse 15 through 16, they show that the work of the law has been on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, I think now we're getting to, again, the eschatological judgment here. Mm -hmm. This is future-oriented language. According to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So part of the foolishness of judgment in the present day among Gentile and Jewish Christians is Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians of the church in Rome, judging one another, judging the outside. He's about to get to this with question of circumcision of the heart. He's already talked about the law being written on their hearts. He's talking about obedience being rendered from proper motivation. And now he's basically telling them, hey, this will only be made clear fully, finally, and forever on the last day of judgment when God is able to judge the secrets of the heart of men 
by Christ Jesus. Mm-hmm. You're like, you're looking at the top here, you know, and you're rendering judgment and you're hypocritical while you're doing it. And you're not even seeing the full picture. So mm-hmm. judgment isn't just merely foolish because it's going to put us in a position of hypocrisy. It's not even merely foolish because only God is proper to judge. It's foolish because we don't see the whole picture. And yet one day Christ will make it all plain, right? You know what I think about when I read this? I think about how I would imagine that each of the three of us has has been wronged, right, by someone in a significant way. We're old enough to have had that in our story. And there have been times where I have been given over to thinking about how one day God will reveal everyone's motives. And so I will I will be in, in heaven. And this person who hurt me, it's finally going to be exposed for what it was, Right. And that, that can be our conception of how God makes all things right in the end is when that person who wronged me finally understands exactly how they wronged me and how terrible it was. Like they will be held accountable to the law. Hmm. And I remember realizing at one point how on that day, I will probably not have the framework to celebrate that moment the way that I picture myself doing it because I will be busy acknowledging my full responsibility for the people that I have wronged, which is not to say that eternity is going to be all of us standing around staring at all of the things that we have done wrong. But I think that the way we conceive of that great judgment, when we picture it, do we picture others being called to account for their wrongs against us? Or do we also reflect that we too will fully understand the wrongs that we have committed against God and others on that day? Yeah, that's and really then good. When, when we come to that realization, do we look toward that, that vision of God's final judgment and think, oh, that's going to that's gonna be crushing? You know, like, mm. is that the way that we think of it? Because I know a lot of Christians, too, they, they don't even want to contemplate that view of God's final judgment. They don't want any part in it. They want Christ's righteousness to cover all of their sins. And yet there is a grace to us in understanding the high and the wide and the long and the deep in that day. I think we will Mm. finally get it in a way that we haven't fully been able to contemplate because we only see in part now. Um, And because Christ's righteousness covers us, we, we will actually be able to celebrate that when I broke the law in this way, there was grace for me. And when I broke it again, there was grace for me. And when I broke it again, even in the sins that I committed, as, the, as you might say, as the Gentiles do, I, I, it was not top of mind for me that I, was, that I was transgressing God's law, that God's grace even went there for me. I think mm-hmm. the day of God's judgment will be a picture of his completely expansive grace. Mm-hmm. That's so good, Jen. Is this when we cue Brad to play in Christ alone? Mm. <laughs> It would work really well right there. I'm about to start worshiping over here right now, Jen. That was really good. <laughs> no, seriously. seriously. And it, it makes you even think back to what he what he says at the beginning. It's God's kindness that yeah. is meant to lead Leads you to repentance. To repentance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, even, even in that day, we will see God's kindness given to us yeah. in Christ. Yeah. That's good. Just to land the plane here on Romans 2, we're going to skip over verses 17 through 24 because I want us, we're running out of time and I want us to hit this. Verses 17 through 24 just point to the picture of hypocrisy, right? Basically like, hey, if you're a teacher and you don't do it, it, it's kind of more along the lines of just pointing out that's actually blasphemy or it results in blasphemy because you you say one thing and you do the other and the Gentile Christians don't trust you. But in verse 25 Mm -hmm. through 29, we hear a some interesting language around circumcision, and we, you know, which certainly would have rung loudly in the ears of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, for that matter, as a huge boundary marker or identifier for 
the unique relationship that Israel had with Yahweh. So let me just read for you. For circumcision, circumcision indeed is a value. Um, circumcision. It's still fun. Don't do that to me. Don't do I really, that to me. I really tried to hold that one together. We got to get through this, but it had to be that word and it had to be that circumcision. Um, for circumcision, indeed, is a value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised Okay. Uh, so if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he was physically uncircumcised, but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Now this would have gone off in my mind, this would have felt like the bombshell of yep. this portion oh, of the letter because is there anything, I mean, we, we see this in Paul's other letters. The question of circumcision and its relationship to Jewish and Gentile Christians is hugely divisive. I mean, Paul has to take the church in Galatia to task mm-hmm. because of the influence of Judaizers. This comes up in Acts. I know it's hard for us today to imagine circumcision being this divisive among Christians. But for Paul to say this stuff at this point, based off of what we know was going on in the letter, what we find out in Acts, this would, I mean, like, it would have been audible, probably, reaction from the crowd while Phoebe reads the letter, right? I mean, I just think for sure people at this point are getting up. They're maybe starting arguments in the corner. People probably walk out when this gets said. You think Phoebe pronounced circumcision without missing a beat? (laughs) I bet she did. (laughs) Sorry, don't mean to keep cutting you, Kyle. Uh, oh, <laughs> well done. Wow. Uh, yeah, those circumcision jokes, they just keep on showing up. Um, they do. Also, like, I was thinking about this. I don't even know if I'm allowed to think about this, but like in a Jewish and Gentile church, you know, when everybody goes for a potty break, don't the guys all know who's circumcised and who's not, right? Like, isn't that how that works? <laughs> I've never, ever once in my whole life considered that. I mean, you talk about an outward sign. Seriously. I mean, it's almost like you have a tattoo that puts you in the in the in club or or not, you know? And and sure. I, I mean, isn't Wait, that part of this? Well, it, it certainly yeah. is. I'm not yeah. gonna like go to that visual again, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but like what what I think would be really helpful for our listeners to think about when they think about this language specifically of works of the law, we cannot give a just amount of time to this, but there has been an enormous amount of ink spilled over the last 30 or 40 years in the evangelical world, thinking specifically about what does, what is Paul talking about when he says we're not justified by works of the law? And I think they're, they're, to simplify Kyle and Kyle help keep me on the rails here, it, it is at least twofold. Works of the law can mean just m- moral effort before God that I think is going to merit righteousness. Yeah. That is typically how it's preached. But we forget what we're talking about right here, which is works of the law being specifically Jewish sign barriers that actually yes. had nothing to do with the internal work of the heart but have, or or effort to merit something with God, but actually was just a spiritual heritage mm-hmm. that was received on the eighth day for a, for a little Jewish boy. And so let's say we're at this Roman potty break. It wasn't just that Paul's talking about 
you guys are, tr- you know, it's not that the Jews have tried harder, therefore they've been made right with God. Right. right. He's talking about a spiritual heritage that they would have received as an ethnic identity marker that separates them from, from Gentiles. And one of the questions I was that I was trying to ask earlier that I, I kind of want to just keep teasing out as we kind of land the plane here is how do we do that today? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are the spiritual badges that we wear that we think make us right before God that are actually not sanctified obedience. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, you go first. Well, I think to myself, like, at least what I, I think what we hear is like, Paul says this elsewhere, well, I'm a follower of Apollos or I'm a follower Mm -hmm. of Peter. I'm Mm -hmm. a follower of Paul or I've been baptized Mm -hmm. by. And I just think about the evangelical celebrity subculture that all of us kind of see and inhabit and live in. Well, like I, I go to Platt's church. I go to mm-hmm. channel, and that doesn't make those mm-hmm. things bad. What Paul's about to say here is that these things can be an advantage to you, but yeah. they're not an advantage unless they lead to obedience. Or I've read Herman Bovink, or mm-hmm. I've been on 15 short-term mission trips, or mm-hmm. we, we begin to develop religious badges that we think distinguish us from other Christians. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. And what, and what Paul is saying here is none of, none of your spiritual heritage or badges separate you if it's not leading you to greater obedience to Christ, that is what all of these things are meant to lead towards. Well, and humility, right? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think another one, JT, and contemporary examples is the hashtag activism. Yeah, oh man. Look at at me, I said something. Why didn't you say something, right? How could you not? How could you not have said something? (laughs) Well, it's like, hold on here. Like, what are we talking about? Is it, we're talking about something that God has required of me that I'm not doing. But mm-hmm. yeah, I think that comes up too. It's like, I need to make sure that I say something so that I can, so everybody else will know I said something when the time came. You know? We don't do it because we think that it's right. We do it so that we can be in. Well, that's the mm-hmm. temptation. Yes. So, I mean, yeah, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting everybody's intention is that, but we can begin right. to process through a lens of how do I make sure I'm in the group, not mm-hmm. what is true, good, and beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what is happening here with the wor- these works of the law for them were not meant to be thought of as I'm working before God, but I'm a recipient of God's promises and blessings more than you are, which makes me a part yeah. of a certain group of people. Yeah, it's become in-group, out-group stuff, not exactly. righteous, unrighteous stuff. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's good. It's good. Well, it's been a good good conversation. We're going to keep, keep it going as we jump into Romans 3 in our next episode. Listen, we're thankful for our sponsor, Southern Seminary. If the next step in your service to Christ and His church is additional theological training, please register today to attend Southern Seminary's preview day on October 15th for just $25. Southern will cover two nights of lodging as well as all your meals on preview day. You can reserve your spot now by going to S sbts.edu slash preview. In our next episode, we're going to jump into Romans 3 and explore just how bad the problem is. Hey, Kyle, Kyle, just real quick. I know we're going to say grace and peace. Can you just read verse 25 one more time? For circumcision... Good oh job. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I, Good I was job, like, Kyle. I thought he has a point left to prove. Listen, yeah. listeners... His point is, <laughs> JT will give you grace, but he will give you no peace. Mm-hmm. There's no yeah. doubt about that. All right, we'll see you later.